I know that I'm not a good recording engineer and I'm not a producer. So that's another team member that I'm going to hire uh, when I make a record. Like I'm not Phineas. I'm not going to make a record in my bedroom. Like I can't do that. And that's not what I want to do. Like, honestly, that doesn't inspire me. What inspires me is to make music with other people. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. Today's episode is a playbook for all the indie artists out there. I had a great conversation with Ari Herstand, who is a musician himself. And he's also the founder of Ari's Take, which is his education business that focuses on how artists can make it today, especially indie artists, how indie artists can make it today in the new music business. And that's actually the title of the third edition of his upcoming book. Ari and I talked a lot about some of the new and updated insights that he has in this edition of the book, specifically around streaming and how artists are starting to favor and prefer focusing on algorithms and how that can get them more listeners and where playlists currently sit with artists prioritizing them. And we also talk about NFTs, TikTok, and Ari's concept in the book called the Pyramid of Investment. This is a great conversation for anyone that wants to better understand the music industry, especially for the growing segment of independent artists that are carving their lanes out for themselves. Here's our episode. Hope you enjoy it. All right, today we are joined by Ari Herstand, who is the author of his new book that's coming out, How to Make It in the New Music Business. He's an artist himself, and I was lucky enough to be a guest on his podcast a couple months back. So Ari, it's great to have you on, and congrats on the book coming up. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Thank you, thank you. Uh, very exciting, uh, the third edition, and uh, get getting ramped up for that. But it's great to be uh, here with you today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. And I know for you, one of the big topics of the book is just how artists continue to evolve with how they're releasing music, how they're paying attention to what's going on with streaming right now. And I feel like you have a good vantage point for this because you're doing so much of this yourself with your own releases. What are some of the big changes? Because I know that everything post-pandemic has been a little different and now we're heading into this new phase right now with the new year. What's the big thing for you that you're seeing with the evolution? Right. So every artist needs to ask themselves what their intentions are with their release. And so, you know, the beautiful thing about the new music business and the scary and daunting thing about the new music business is there really isn't a right or a wrong way to do anything. There is the right and wrong way for you. And that could be the wrong way for me. So everyone, you know, it's based on your intentions and what your goals are for the release. So if we just if we just go, you know, more in the mainstream realm or, or let's just say your intention is to be successful on Spotify, because that's a metric that most artists these days are kind of using to gauge the success of their release. And they want to have the best chance of, you know, grabbing that that Spotify uh, being being blessed by the Spotify gods, I guess. And so to do that, there is a very specific release strategy that has been studied and now tested and now used by everyone from Lizzo and Krungman to Maggie Rogers to Robert Glasper. And that's the waterfall release method. And, um, and, and indie artists, you know, that are just releasing their first few singles are using this as well. I mean, it, this is uh, the waterfall release method and I'll break this down a little bit on, on what this means. This is, you know, this was started to get used a few years ago, but it really picked up last year in 2022. And now 2023 is, I think, going to be the year of the waterfall. But basically what it is, is, is that, you know, you release singles leading up to the album. That has been happening for years now. However, here's what gets a little bit more where, where it gets a nuance on how those singles are released. It's you don't just release a single song anymore as a single. You release your first single, one song, and that's just the the one song released, one single. Now your second single is that the new song is track number one, and the previous single that you released is track number two. So it's technically your second single, but it's kind of like a two-song album if you really go that way, if you're queuing it up, if you're an artist, because artists ask me this all the time, I'm like, 
well, how do I do this in my DistroKid backend or whatever, like doing it's a two song album, you know, and the way that the streams maintain for the previous single and that you don't lose your playlist uh, inclusion, all that stuff is you use the same ISRC number. And so it's uh, if you use the same ISRC number that you used when you released that that track a month prior, it will be identical stream counts. And then a month later, you release your third single. But that's now a three-track album. And, you know, track number one is the new single. Track number two is the single you released a month ago. And track number three is the, is the single you released two months ago. And as long, again, you use the same ISOC numbers, it'll be included in the same playlist. They will be identical tracks wherever they're included on people's you know, personal playlists, all that stuff. So you can do this. People are doing five or six singles that way. And then the album and this release method, you know, this could take, eight months essentially if you want to do one single every four to six weeks and then the album and you're essentially how you can kind of look at it is you're building the album and so it doesn't have to go in order you can pick whatever order you want based on your singles and then the final album is uh the the album order no correlation doesn't have to be the single order you can pick whatever order you want each time the track art can be different each time i've seen it people do different single art for each release i've seen people just use the uh, album cover for every release and so you know at the end you might have like six singles released that each have a few different songs on them and then the full album some people pull those previous singles down so if they want to get a clean discography going up there you just have a final album at the end of the day and the previous singles with like the you know the two song album the three song album the four song album before they pull those down but you're not going to lose any playlists you're not going to lose any stream counts because you're using the same IRCC numbers each time. So that is a release method. And the reason people are doing it this way is for the Spotify algorithm, because Spotify likes to have regular releases. And if you send somebody, say, hey, here's my new song, and you send them the link, they're going to listen to that song. Now, if there's nothing, no other songs following that song to listen to, after your song finishes, Spotify is going to recommend them something to listen to, or they're going to jump off and listen to something else. Now, if you give them the songs to listen to that after uh, your previous releases, they'll stick around and they'll keep listening to it. So the reason people are doing this is for the Spotify algorithm, but also to keep their fans engaged. So like, say, here's here's single number four, and they listen to it, and like, oh, cool, what now? I'm going to go back to listening to my favorite artist, unless you have singles three, two, and one also there. I'm like, oh, I'll just keep listening to the other songs on this essential playlist you you think about whatever you want a four song album a four song single a playlist of your new singles however you want to think of it the user is just thinking oh i'm clicking on this link or uh new music friday or i'm in my release radar and i see this new single come out by this new by uh, an artist i like and then spotify is going to start to recommend those songs through the algorithm and the best thing about continuing to release the, and the waterfall method is like those previous singles stay included in release radar. So this is like what has been figured out by labels and managers and artists over the last few years. And um, on based on what Spotify wants to see and basically what they're being rewarded for with the algorithm from Spotify. And, you know, I think a few years ago, everybody was chasing the playlist editors and like, oh my gosh, if I can just get included in the hot, you know, rap caviar, then like I'm set forever and whatever. The playlist inclusion, the editorial playlists are not as powerful right now as the algorithmic playlists are. That is a big change is like three, four years ago, people were like, oh, it's all about the official editorial. Now you want to trigger that algorithm because that is now personalizing every single user's playlist based on what Spotify thinks that that user likes to hear. And you want to get your songs included in that. And people are just letting Spotify feed them now based on the algorithm versus seeking out playlists to listen. And why do you think that that shift happened from the playlist prioritization to the algorithm? Was it something internal with Spotify or is it just a natural decline in the power of playlists? Yeah, I mean, the main thing is, is let's think about what Spotify's intentions and goals are. Their goals are to keep users on their platform as long as possible. And they've discovered that if you feed users songs that they want to hear and have a higher success rate of them 
continuing to listen and stay on Spotify, then they're going to follow that. Then Spotify is going to do more of that. So they, they, you know, they've been a B in this for years. They're like, okay, do people stick on our platform on Spotify longer by listening to our editorial playlists that human beings employed by Spotify are creating? Or do they stick on our platform longer by the algorithmic playlists that our internal, you know, robots uh, are, are curating for them, the algorithms curating for them. And what they found is that people are sticking around longer with the algorithmic playlist. So they're, they're now doing more of that and realizing that this is what is engaging uh, users to stay on Spotify longer because that's what users prefer. The algorithm has gotten a lot better at learning people's tastes, music tastes, than any singular playlist editor. And the other thing is, when we're talking about indie artists, is that why indie artists need to refocus their efforts into more of the algorithmic lane versus the editor lane, is that uh, playlist editors, I mean, it's like playing the lottery to try to get an official Spotify editorial playlist. Like, for one, with 100,000 songs being uploaded every day, you have a very, very hard chance of getting selected, being the one of those songs that is going to get included on the very select few Spotify editorial playlist spots. But the algorithm, there's, you know, billions, literally billions of playlists that theoretically that they can put you on or the algorithm will will insert you into various people's radios or discover weeklies or whatever. You have a much better chance of getting there. And then if users respond well to your song there, meaning you pop up on someone's discover weekly and they click save, I like this song, I want to hear more of it, and they don't skip it, that sends signals back to the Spotify algorithm like, oh, this song is performing well, let's try it in more algorithmic playlists, let's try it in more radio, let's try it in more of these, and then theoretically, you'll just get included more and more and more, and then it'll just kind of snowball on, on itself. Yeah, I think the algorithm getting better, that point you mentioned, is likely one of the big drivers of this, because if I think back to the days of, let's say, like the mid-2010s, the algorithm still felt a bit similar to those old Pandora algorithms where after the seventh song, you start hearing the same thing over and over. And if you're comparing that to, let's say, what Tuma Basa was doing at Rap Caviar at the time, then of course, yeah, I think Tuma is going to be the better curator of what you have. But if you're shifting things to now where these algorithms just get better and better and better, then, and I think as well, over time, a lot of the playlists also a bit had that allure. There was a bit of the, oh, this is the new radio. This is this. But then, yeah, when the playlists get better and better, even as a Spotify user over time, you can see that, okay, they do have a better sense for where things are. So naturally, it did shift the behavior. And I think you kind of saw this more broadly with, you know, outside of music as well with movies or TV shows and other things. I think the algorithms do get better over time. Oh, absolutely. Yes. We're seeing that, you know, absolutely across the board with Netflix and Hulu and Prime and all of that stuff. But I mean, you bring up a good point about, uh, you know, Tuman and the human playlist editors and what, you know, the power has shifted away from these playlist editors in part because Spotify is pulling the power from that because, you know, they're now not saying they're not giving the playlist editors free reign. It's kind of like if we we can compare it to you know radio stations back in the day that the DJs had the power and they could play whatever they wanted, and that was like you know in the seventies and the eighties and and maybe even a little bit in the nineties. You know the DJs could play whatever they wanted, and they were all powerful because that's how people discovered music. Then Clear Channel took over and bought up all the radio stations. And was like, oh, guess what? These are the only songs that you're allowed to play now. Here's the list. And then every week, Clear Channel would update that list and send the list to all the DJs and say, you can choose, but you have to play these songs. So then the DJs became less powerful because they that power was removed away from them by the overlords, which was the owners of the station, which was Clear Channel. The same thing has started to happen on Spotify. The editors used to be the all-powerful DJs. They used to be all-powerful playlist editors. Now, their overlords, their owners, Spotify, has come to them and be like, well, guess what? Your playlist is not keeping people on this, on Spotify and on the playlist long enough anymore. So you're only allowed to do three new songs a week. And if those three songs don't really perform well, then you're either going to lose your job or you're not going to uh, be have the liberty to 
to uh, choose the song anymore. Oh, and guess what? Of those three songs, they actually have to be from this list, which is the songs that have already been pre-tested on the algorithmic side. So it's kind of like we, we see the same thing as it's like, instead of Clear Channel dictating the list based on their private marketing rooms and, and studies with, with surveys of, of listeners like they used to do when they would, they would test songs with radio, with market groups, now Spotify is testing songs with the algorithm and then they send those songs to the editors and be like, okay, these songs are proven. So, you know, when Tuma was selecting the song for Rap Caviar, he wasn't most of the time, I mean, maybe he was at the start of it, but, but as it got later on and on, and what's happening with today's top hits, with Rap Caviar and all of them, is it's not one person anymore that's shooting. I mean, when Troy Carter was at Spotify and, and kind of in charge of all of this, he, he said this, and this was, mind you, four or five years ago, this was happening then. It's like with those big, big playlists, they weren't allowing the edit. He's like, it's, it's no one person um, that is deciding this. It's uh, these songs are tested, and then we decide that it's going to go into those big playlists. But now that's happening on every playlist, top to bottom. Right. And circling back to what you had said in the beginning, that this, of course, is shifting artists to that focus on how they're releasing music, the waterfall strategy, but tweaking that specifically for what they're doing with singles leading up to the album. But I also have to assume that to a certain extent, some of this does become table stakes in that everyone, as you mentioned, is doing it that knows what they're doing, right? Whether it's you or it's Lizzo or others. So once that's kind of the lay of the land, are there additional things that, you know, artists that you're at least suggesting that artists should or shouldn't be doing, or at that point does become more and more dependent on things that are independent of the release, whether it's the artist's fandom, the quality of the music and so on. Absolutely. And this goes back to the intentions. And so, you know, it's no secret that in 2020, 2021, even a bit last year in 2022, uh, the TikTok was, you know, a massive driver of streams. And so it's like, for some artists, that was where they found success. But, you know, and this is where we get into what are your intentions and who is your fan base? If your fan base are, you know, if you're if you're making, you know, if you're making kind of straight ahead rock and roll, that's going to appeal to like 35 year old plus, or you're making like throwback traditional R&B, that's similarly going to appeal to a 35, 40 year old audience and up your marketing methods should not be TikTok. So like, if somebody's like, Oh, you got to do TikTok," Well, it's like, no, you don't have to do it. If you know, you have to understand who your audience is. If your audience is on TikTok, then maybe. And if, and if your, your music that you make could be TikTokified, if, if like, you know, it's like, it's funny, you know, and the, all that art, no, with, with Lizzo's song about damn time, you know, the thing that went viral on TikTok was like the seven seconds of the first line of the second verse. It's like the most random shit that catches on TikTok that you just like don't even know. And oftentimes it's just like you just never know what what's going to catch or not. And it's like so yes, you can TikTok can be a strategy absolutely. And it's it's like buying lottery tickets. So like the more you post, the more you know tickets that you're buying the higher probability you have of something catching and then people using that bit of course there's deeper strategies that you can um implore if you really want to study this if, if you're like tiktok is the method and the way that i want to go totally like you can you can work influencer marketing that means you know get hundreds of influencers with varying audience sizes micro influencers macro whatever kind of budget you have pay them a little bit of money to use your song or your snippet of your song, your 15 seconds of your song in their video, have everybody do it in the same week. And hopefully that gives you a chance that inspires more people to use that same 15 seconds in their videos. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's kind of like uh, back in the day, you know, when labels would go to, uh, would work a radio campaign and spend $300,000 on promoting a single at, at radio. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes you lost $300,000 and that's what we're seeing right now with influencer marketing campaigns because TikTok is so fickle and random that you don't know if it's going to work, even if you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on an influencer market. So that is one way. Yeah, the TikTok point is, I think the Lizzo point is key with that because I know that she 
spent and her team spent a lot of time focused on trying to make that whole album special pop on TikTok. So to your point, the fact that they probably thought it would have been the the bad bitch o'clock line, but then it ends up being a completely different line that ends up being going viral. Like you just don't know how exactly it's going to go. But the fact that the team put in work means that something was able to pop there. And, you know, the beauty of TikTok is that you can test and test and test and test and test for free, especially like indie artists are doing this all the time. So like, yes, Lizzo has millions of dollars behind her and a full team of people that can do this. I'm seeing this with indie artists doing this all the time where they're just testing on their own. You know, they'll post a few videos a day or a week or whatever with different snippets of their line uh, of of their songs, rather, and uh, seeing which ones respond best and then like oh okay it's this part of the song like you know if they were if they were lizard you're like oh it's it's the first line of the second verse responded better than the other previous 15 snippets that i posted over the last three weeks so let me do 10 more videos of just that first line of the second verse and see if it was a fluke or if this is actually about a pattern that i'm onto something and they're like oh that is what's connecting and like oh my gosh 20 people just posted videos using that the first line of the second verse and they're like all right let's keep doing that and then you kind of you know this is how you discover what worked it's just trial and error whether you have uh, a label of you know 20 social media experts doing this and a million dollars behind it to like throw gasoline on the fire by hiring influencers to do this or if you yourself and your best friend in your bedroom figuring this out it's it's the same strategy yeah that makes sense. And especially with the fact that indie artists can tweak and it is free to essentially to tweak on TikTok. But I'm curious to hear your opinion on just how the indie artist specifically can have the ideal team structure. Because like we said, on one end, you have Lizzo million dollars behind you. On the other end, you have, yeah, it's you and maybe your friend can help you do this. But somewhere in the middle is that successful indie artist that doesn't have the you know major record label resources, but is still tweaking things. So even if we think a bit more broader than social media, what does that team look like? Like maybe even for yourself, like what does that team structure look like to make sure you have all the pieces in place to run a successful indie business? Totally. I mean, it's a great question. And, and I um, I talk about this in, in the book. I've updated the new team. I call it the, you know, the new team because there's been the traditional team that's been around for decades. And that's what everybody understands. Like your, your artist manager, your personal manager, your record label, your booking agent, your publicist, your attorney, you know, a publisher like this, that's the traditional team that, uh, you know, you'll read about in the other music business books written by lawyers that were written 30 years ago. Most in the industry on that level, they haven't really updated that team. But when it really comes down to what we're looking about in the new music business with indie artists, especially is before you get those big players on your team, you still have to run your own business yourself. And sometimes you never... We've seen a lot of indie artists that don't ever want a record label, and that's totally fine. So so you don't need that team member necessarily. But what you do need is to be putting out regular content that's representative of who you are as an artist. And so what does that require? Well, it requires video content. Okay, you need someone on your team that can make really good video content. If that's you, cool. But sometimes it's not the artist. And so having someone on the team that's good at video, videographer, whatever, an editor... That is a key member of the new team that is extremely necessary. Same with the photographer. You know, it'd be, it's really important to kind of have regular new high quality photos or any kind of photos, whether it's your, you know, candid photos when you're around, when you're on tour, photos from the stage, from behind you with the audience there showing what you're about, promo photos, press photos. So like a photographer doesn't need to be a full-time member on the team. But I think doing regular photo shoots and having people that are regularly pumping out photos, again, it doesn't need to be as formal as like a, a, a record label or a team member like that. It's like, oh, you're my best friend. You're you have an, a new iPhone and you're really good at taking photos. Let's like take a lot of photos all the time and continue to post them. And that counts too, you know, and uh, same with like a, a designer, like a, a graphic designer, you know, there's there's so many use cases where graphic design is going to be necessary, whether it's designing your album cover or it's merch items or it's show posters or, you know, any other cases where you need something designed. It, again, doesn't need to be a full-time member of the team. It could be someone you enlist over Upwork 
that you hire to do that. Or it could be a friend of yours that's like really good at, at kind of that wants to help out. Um, and then there's this this role that I call the digital specialist. And, uh, you know, at managers and labels will call them. It's like they call them digital. They're just like the digital person. And it's like, oh, you know, we're going to send it over to digital. Basically, what that is, is like they specialize in uh, social media advertising. So this is something that is is really crucial when it comes to uh, the release strategy that we were talking about previously. Virtually every single record label, indie label, up to the majors, down to individual artists that are releasing music on their own um, that have a little bit of a budget are now running social media ads. It takes a lot of time to learn all this. And it's a specialty for sure, whether you're running ads on, you know, via the meta ads manager with with Instagram and Facebook or the TikTok ads manager, YouTube, Google ads, all that stuff. That's what a digital specialist can can do. And then they kind of monitor everything and then they gather all the assets and then they help kind of guide the strategy. And so all this being said is like these are these are team members that are important to every indie artist's career right now. Now they don't need to be individual people that handle these roles. I've seen indie artists that do all these roles themselves and they're their own team right now. And that's cool if they can figure that out. For me personally, like I know that I'm not a good recording engineer and I'm not a producer. So that's another team member that I'm going to hire uh, when I make a record. Like I'm not Phineas. I'm not going to make a record in my bedroom. Like I can't do that. And that's not what I want to do. Like, honestly, that doesn't inspire me. What inspires me is to make music with other people. And so like, I'm the type of artist that I'll get into a studio with eight other musicians and we'll track something live, you know? And like, that's what I like doing and that inspires me. But I need a producer, I need an engineer, I need a mixing engineer, I need a mastering engineer. These are all team members that I might enlist for that one recording, you know, but other people like Phineas was Billie Eilish's first team member. And he was her recording engineer and producer. And like she had that built in team where she could they could be pumping out music to SoundCloud regularly early on, whereas like a lot of artists don't have that, but some do. So it's like, again, what are your intentions? What inspires you? What kind of music do you want to make? But there are certain roles that can be filled by either your your brother (laughs) in the down the hall in the bedroom or by someone halfway around the world on Upwork. But these are the roles that that can be filled in the jobs that need to get done. That makes sense. I know another thing for these teams is someone that is always keeping their eye on the new big thing or the new small thing to be able to test out just being able to figure out what's there. And the past couple of years, Web3 and NFT specifically have gotten even more traction. And I think maybe in the most recent year, got a little bit less traction to just from an overall transaction level. But as we're heading into 2023 now, how do you look at NFTs as part of your strategy? And how do you look at Web3 more broadly for what artists are doing and any examples that you may have of like, yes, this person that is an indie artist that wasn't just a major artist, like did it and they've done it really well. Absolutely. I don't see Web3 slowing down anytime soon. I still see that this is as a digital society is heading. It's evolving for sure. You know, Bitcoin isn't kind of what is all encompassing anymore like it was five, six years ago. It's not even just about cryptocurrencies and it's not even just about NFTs. Like NFTs, the reason that it's lost a lot of its initial luster and sheen is because when it first kind of caught on, you know, early 2021 or so, it was like that was the sexy new thing that nobody quite understood. But once you once you got it, you're like, whoa, this is crazy. It's a digital collectible. Cool. I collected playing cards when I was growing up. I get it. Sweet. That's what this is. A digital collectible. One of one. Okay, cool. I understand it. So that was like, and people were trying to find use cases. Like, you know, we we initially heard about um, Kings of Leon was like one of the first that did like an NFT album and they tied, you know, physical experiences to their NFTs, like you get front row tickets if you were one of the NFT holders for life and you could redeem the NFT for front row tickets. So that was like the first wave, I'd say. Now what we're seeing is more use cases and people that are creating them independently. So like I had uh, on the podcast, on my podcast, the Nemus Business Podcast, I had Sammy Ariaga. He's this country, he's this Latin country artist. And it's really, he's a really 
great, really cool crossover artist. He is a country musician, but it's kind of with Latin-infused country music. It's really cool. Um, he had a deal with Sony. Uh, he was signed to Sony as an artist, and, and he had a publishing deal for a while. They He got dropped. It wasn't up to the major label success standards that they were hoping for. Uh, got dropped. Then he actually had a little bit of success on TikTok in like 2020. And then he pivoted to NFTs in 2022, actually, I believe. And just cut to the headline, he made over $250,000 on his NFT of his album and, and or actually of a song. It was just one song, to be honest. And how he did it, what was really interesting, it wasn't because of his fan base, because the vast majority of music fans right now still have not come around to NFTs. So they're, they're not really in the metaverse. They're not in the crypto uh, Web3 community yet. But the Web3 community is still very, very strong. It is thriving and kicking. So if you can tap into that, then you can actually have a lot of success there right now, currently today. Now, in five years, I do believe that um, most music fans, there will be use cases and every artist will will have something to do with NFTs um, and Web3 and, and micro-investing, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but what Sammy did was he went to that that Web3 community and where do they primarily exist at the time and still really is on Twitter and specifically Twitter spaces. So what he did is he went into these Twitter spaces rooms. These are, um, you know, like the audio Twitter spaces, like the audio new version of Clubhouse and any any space that was talking about NFTs and Web3, he'd pop in, he'd listen for a little bit. And then he'd raise his hand and, you know, I asked to come up and speak. They'd invite him to speak. And he's like, hey, guys, you've been talking about NFTs for the last hour. Can I play you a song that I wrote actually about an NFT? And it's called uh, Metagirl. And it's uh, M-E-T-A, like Metaverse, Metagirl. And uh, and they're like, oh, okay. So he essentially, then he played the song. He's like, you can actually get that song right now as an NFT. The link's in my, uh, and I'll pin the link right here. And they would like pin the link in the Twitter space. And that's how we did it. And he made $250,000 just from doing, essentially, by busking on Twitter spaces. <laughs> and it's like, how many Twitter spaces did he do to make that happen? It was a lot, uh, you know, because some had 100 people, some had 1,000 people, some, you know. But he did it for a while. And, and like, that's a way, you know, that's not a, a scalable method necessarily that I'm encouraging people to, like, go busk on Twitter spaces and make an NFT. But he was able to do that in, by finding that community. Now, you know, Verite is another uh, indie artist. She was one of the first to kind of start experimenting on NFT platforms and selling NFTs. But what she also did early on that we're now starting to see more widely adopted was she not only would release NFTs tied to her songs, but she would tie royalties to the NFTs, meaning... You don't just buy an NFT as the digital collectible that you're hoping to resell and make a little money on. You're actually buying a percentage of ownership of the song or like of royalties, I should say, of the song. So like she had one time, you know, auctioned off, I guess, uh, you know, and it it was through a a, a blockchain platform. I believe she used Royal at the time, which is Nas's uh, platform. Uh, She like gave away 40% or sold 40% 40% of one of her songs to people. And so you could buy whatever percentage you wanted and it was valued at a certain level. And then you could buy that. Now, those platforms are starting to pop up. Like um, I'm on the advisory board of one uh, called LabelCoin. And uh, they're a, a new platform that, you know, uh, started by a booking agent, uh, Mark Miller, who I've known for years. And he approached me. He's like, hey, here's this, th- what we're doing. And it's essentially, it it, it is the same concept it's using blockchain technology but essentially being able to sell a percentage of royalties for your song so you could theoretically like say i'm going to sell 50 percent of the royalties of my song and to a thousand people and so you could buy like you know a half a percent or a quarter of a percent or a small percentage it's like buying stocks essentially so it's like you know it's like the robin hood for music and so we're starting to see that and the blockchain technology just gives it's just the it's just a technology that the whole infrastructure is built on because it's just more streamlined that way. And so like what we're moving to in the future, when um, these platforms like LabelCoin and Royal and the others like really start to break into mainstream, 
is the fans aren't going to think, oh, I have to learn cryptocurrency and I have to get a get a, a wallet and, you know, buy some of ETH uh you know from the ethereum and buy some ether and like you know buy like that that is the heavy lift that why it prevented so many people from getting into the nfts like i have to learn how to do this and pay gas fees and blah blah, blah. like all the shit that it takes hours and hours and hours and hours just for one person to buy like one nft <laughs> it's like we're gonna move away from that and it's gonna be like a fan's like oh i'm gonna get 10 percent of the royalties of ari's new song and it's done in 10 seconds. And like, they don't even know. Today's episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by Lalo. Are you tired of spending weeks planning your music, merch, and ticket drops only to hope that your fans see your announcement and remember when it comes out? With Lalo, in seconds, you'll have a drop page that automatically notifies your fans across Instagram DMs, SMS, email, and Messenger. Every month, creators like Sam Smith, Drewski, Zach Bryan, and Kodak Black use Lalo to notify millions of fans the second they drop content, merch, and tickets. So why wait? Triple your streams and sales, own your data, and make your drops dope with Lalo. Get your own drop page for free using the link in the show notes, or you can go to Lalo.com to learn more. That's L-A-Y-L-O.com. Yeah, it needs to be as easy as like buying something off of Amazon, right? Like it needs to be instant. And I think that I agree with you. I think that was probably one of the biggest gaps for a while. There was all these things. And some of it I think is natural with any new technology. There is an adoption curve. It's always going to attract the enthusiast, which at least in this recent era, congregated mostly on Web3 corners of Twitter and we're discussing things. So I think it's really smart, you know, for artists to you know, jump in on Twitter spaces the way that they did. But it was really interesting to hear that in a lot of ways, yeah, they weren't even reaching their like diehard fans. They were just reaching people that were interested. But that said, I think so much of this rings true with something else that's a concept in your book, the pyramid of investment. And I think I look at this a lot of ways, almost like a inverted sales funnel, if you will, just in terms of building awareness, the decision intent, and then actually getting people to act on it. And knowing that you can obviously generate revenue at each level of those streams, but NFTs, especially if they're used the way that they could, is something that does sit at the tip of that pyramid. It's not going to be everyone, but it is something to monetize the diehard fans that you have. But even there, you can adjust where it sits based on what you price it, how many drops you have, and so many other things. Absolutely. Yes. The pyramid of investment, um, this concept that I, I have in the book, I'll, I'll just kind of break it down a little bit so people understand it's like you think about it you know this is financial investment i also have a pyramid of engagement um which i'll get into in a second but but with just investment um at the bottom of that pyramid we have uh the people that don't really spend any money on you directly they might stream your song they might stream your music uh you might make a little bit of money from what their actions that they're taking like the stream your music but they're not like spending money on you directly so that's the bottom of the pyramid and that's where the vast majority of the music uh fan audience listenership lives just across the industry uh but as we go up the pyramid you know then there's like uh those that might attend your live stream and like tip you over that or they might just like tip you here and there and um you know in the digital realm sure it's it's a live stream it's on twitch or it's whatever or like you know uh, they can tip you in, in real life or something. They're going to your shows and they'll tip you. So it's like the tippers, essentially. And then you go up a little bit higher, uh, the people that are actually buying tickets to your shows. 
Now, this is that, that tier higher. They are actually directing money directly to you and they're coming to your concerts. They're, they're your ticket buyers, your concert goers. Then you up a level higher. They're the merch buyers. They're the ones that buy merch at those shows or buy merch online by, you know, your store or from your Spotify profile or whenever they're buying merch directly from you. They're like, I'm a real fan. I want to buy the merch. Then we go higher and then we're into that category of fan clubs, crowdfunding campaigns, you know, investment, NFT, three point, you know, Web3, that whole realm of like, I want to be a, I'm like such a big fan that if they're on Patreon, I'm going to be their patron. If uh, they're running the Kickstarter, I'm going to back their Kickstarter. If they're selling a percentage of their royalties of their new song, I want to buy that. And then at the very tippy tippy top of that, it's kind of a little bit about two, but it's like those that are buying the VIP packages. So it, it's kind of like a combination of it all. It's like that. Uh, am I going to, you know, I go to the show and I spend the $250 for the, you know, to attend sound check and get the merch package and do that whole thing. So it's like, that's all at the top. And uh, so you, you think about this as the pyramid of investment, you're going to have fans at every level of that. And you want to make sure that you cater to all of them and that you don't exclude some. So it's like, you know, I think people can kind of have understood this concept when like I first I first got this like six, seven years ago when Patreon kind of was really started to hit uh, after Kickstarter. And I saw some of my friends that were running Patreon campaigns and Kickstarter campaigns simultaneously. And to me, that seemed counterintuitive. I was just like, wait a minute. Your fans are only going to do one or the other. It's like they're going to either back your crowdfunding campaign for your new album or they're going to be your patrons, right? No, I was wrong. Like what it was was really like Kickstarter is below on that pyramid. There were more people that are willing to drop a hundred bucks this one time, this one year to back your Kickstarter. But then there's fewer people a little bit higher up on that pyramid that are going to pay you $10 a month on Patreon or Substack or whatever it's going to be, Bandcamp, you know, any subscriber service that are a level higher that will be your subscribers. And then it just kind of keeps going up from there. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And the thing that I've often thought about the model too is that, of course, the revenue that you get per fan does increase as you go further up that period. But if you were to multiply that by the number of fans in each of those tiers, do you find that the tiers do start to equal out roughly or what does that look like for, for you? Just on the total. That's a really great question. I don't have any data to back that up, but that's a really great experiment and, and something that should be studied. I think like an artist that kind of, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to work on, I'm going to put work on putting those numbers together. That's a great idea. It's kind of like along the lines of the thousand true fans concept where this concept is, you know, uh, they say that if you can get a thousand people to pay you a hundred dollars a year every year for the rest of your life, rest of your career, now you have a career and that's all you really need is a thousand people to pay you a hundred dollars. However, if you break that down a little bit differently on the pyramid of investment, you don't need a thousand people to pay you a hundred dollars. You could get a hundred people to pay you $400. You could get 200 people to pay you $200. You could get, you know, 400 people to pay you $50, you get 700 people to pay you $20 a year, you know, and you can really break that down a little bit differently. And so it's like, how are you going to get to that $100,000 a year mark if that's your goal or a million dollars a year if that's your goal? And it, all these fans are going to fall somewhere. All this money is going to fall somewhere on that pyramid of investment. Yeah. I think about it this way too, maybe from like an example perspective. I look at, let's look at someone at the top, look at someone like Beyonce. I could see her, I would need to do the math, but let's just say ballpark speaking, she gets $30 million a year of revenue from her music, right? For, purely from streaming. Then I could also see her getting $30 million a year from, let's say she does a few concerts that year or a few special one-offs. She could also get $30 million a year from doing two private shows or performing at a wedding or something like that, or performing at an Uber private event. So each of those things can equal that amount, but yeah, I think I, I think that way to break down the thousand true fans I think is important too because I think when that theory came out, uh, Kevin Kelly's I think it was back in two thousand eight he put it out. It made a bunch of sense, but I think for most people putting things out, yeah, even that requires a bit of 
segmentation there. So it's it's fascinating. And I'm sure so much of this is fascinating for you as well, because I feel like you kind of have two examples of this with the businesses that you're running. You have Ari Herstand, the artist, and you have your own um, pyramid of investment. You also have your business of this podcast, the courses, and the book as well. And for you, I'm sure I know you have a team that helps with each of these things, but do you look at it any differently between the two, you know, yourself as a educator that is sharing this information combined with yourself as the musician? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, I think, you know, why people have responded to the Ari's Take Business and my book and Ari's Take Academy and, and the New Music Business Podcast and all the stuff that like, I do on the music business education front is because I am a musician. I have that musician's empathy. I've, you know, lived it, am living it. And, and it's like, I understand how hard everything is. I, it's like, you know, I'm not just saying it to say it like, and, and because I read it somewhere, like I'm living it. I'm interviewing people that are living it. Um, I, you know, I put on two different hats. Like I look at myself almost now as like part journalists and like kind of, you know, in the lane that you're in where by interviewing more people, we learn more and that's great. Like I, I, I know my perspective can be, uh, everyone's perspective can be limited to their own experiences. So I try to widen my experiences by widen, widen my information base by talking to more people. So the whole point of the podcast, honestly, was just to talk to more people, smarter people than me that are doing bigger things and more successfully than I was doing so I could learn from them and then share that information. Like I've always interviewed people from like Ari's Take and writing for other publications. And I I then made the podcast basically just making those conversations public. With my own music career, you know, the intentions have shifted. Like when I started Ari's Take as a blog 10 years ago, I made 100% of my money uh, from my music. I was a, I was a, like a full-time artist, touring artist, releasing music, all that stuff, like touring most of my year, going on plenty of national tours. The intentions have shifted when I realized where I can be most useful and necessary. So like, I don't tour anymore, you know, I'll do one-offs here and there, but like, and when I, when I, uh, with my new funk project, Grassroots District, it's like, I do in a kind of an immersive funk experience and I want to keep that in one place like we did in LA and like last summer we did you know a 16 show run in LA and that's like my creative outlet like I do in the intentions of that we're not I want to top the Spotify charts and like go on tour and so like why I keep going back to like what are the intentions for every artist is like they're different so my intention for that was like I wanted to sell out all those 16 shows and like that was my intention for that thing or i wanted at least you know give people a good experience and have a good time doing these things and like i released a solo album last year under my own name and the intention of that was honestly not i want to go on tour or i want to you know uh, get millions of streams it was just like i went through a breakup and i needed to write these songs and release them for my own mental health and just like honestly just for my own well-being like get these songs out there and people connected with them and that was wonderful and like i heard from tons of people that really resonated with the songs and like that was something that you know gave me some perspective too is it's like my focus right now is not making a living just for my solo singer songwriter project like it used to be that being said there's a place for everything and so you know i cover this concept of like the multi-hyphenate Everyone's a multi-hyphenate, everyone, from Beyonce down to me and any other indie artist that is working a day job or whatever, everyone's a multi-hyphenate. And like your your job title can start with musician and then it can be, you know, what else? It's like some people are musician lift drivers. Some people are, you know, musician entrepreneur, CEOs, like, you know, Dre uh, has beats, headphones. It's like, oh, he's a, you know, entrepreneur and a business person. And so it's like, I, I don't think artists need to feel like shameful or insecure about their other hyphenates, their other job titles. You know, at the end of the day, you want to do what inspires you. And so for me, you know, my idea of success is making a living, supporting the kind of lifestyle that I'd like to live, doing what I love. 
and and offering value and meaning to people. And so I've kind of structured my own life in a way where I go to where I feel like I'm needed and then where I can bring value to people and that I've found, you know, most useful in kind of the Ari's take lane and the music business uh, lane of, of everything I'm doing. But at the same time, like I'm an artist at my core, like I'm never not going to be an artist. Like that's just like who I am. That's like what my soul is. And so it's like, I can't ever stop doing that. But like, if I don't want to force myself to wring out as much money from that, that's, there's, there's no shame in that. Like that's, you know, sure. You know, I, I say this all the time to people. It's like, if you're happy making music from home and putting it online and you're making like 50 grand a year by doing that and that's like what you figured out how to do you get some syncs here you're on some ads you get some streaming whatever and like you're doing that and you're happy wonderful could you make a hundred two hundred three hundred thousand dollars more if you like went on tour or upped your merch operation or like you know started a patreon or, or launched an nft or something like that maybe but do you have to no of course not like do what makes you happy like if that's going to make you unhappy because you're chasing more money and like why like you don't need to do that like do what makes you happy and that's the big thing and so it's like you know i'm constantly figuring that out for myself and i encourage other artists to figure it out for themselves too yeah and i think that's a good way to put it right there's so much optionality now there's so many opportunities and everyone is a multi-hyphenate it's really up to you how many hyphens you have behind that name and how heavily you want to push all of them. And I think the the other one for you is author. And of course, you have this book coming out in a couple of weeks. So yeah, before we let you go, let me just do one more close to let people know the updates with the book and when to expect it. Yeah, uh, the book, uh, How to Make It in the New Music Business, it's the third edition. It is out January 17th, 2023. Uh, you can get it wherever you find books, with it's Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local bookstore. And I don't know when this is airing or going to go live, but uh, if you're in LA on January 17th, join me at Barnes & Noble at The Grove, and we're doing a book signing and a live podcast recording there. But yeah, I've added 100 new pages to it. I've updated stuff in every section. I've rewritten chapters from scratch. Of course, a lot of stuff we talked about today is in the book, like NFTs and um, Web3 and TikTok and, and live streaming, a lot of stuff that didn't exist three years ago. So I've completely rewritten the majority of the book. So even if you have the first or second edition of the book, I encourage you to check out this third edition. It's it's uh, very, very different and updated. Good stuff, man. Excited for you. Thanks again for coming on. This is great. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Traffalo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.